wonderful. We're going to open the Word together, and as most of you will know, uh, since uh, Christmas, we've been exploring together the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. We've been looking at this familiar story of how the universe was created, of how the story of the universe began, and um, we've been particularly asking what this story, what this passage of Scripture has to teach us, reveal to us about who God is and what he is like. I hope that as we've looked at this passage of Scripture together, that we've not simply gone away with more information in our heads about a theory to do with the beginning of the universe. I hope we've gone away with a renewed or an expanded vision of who God is and what he is like. It's been a real blessing and privilege for me to be able to dive in to these uh, these words and to be able to see again afresh who God is and what he is like. A few weeks ago, we looked at the first image of God given to us in the first couple of verses of the Bible, how the Bible says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we discovered there that God is the kind of God who even in the darkness is present in tenderness and gentleness hovering over us. A couple of weeks ago, we reflected on day one of creation when God created the light and separated it from the darkness. And I hope what we discovered there was that God is the one who is ruler over darkness, but God is also the one who is the victor over the darkness. He rules over it and he conquers it. It was a wonderful time together as God revealed his wonder to us. And this morning I want us to continue thinking about who God is and what he is like from the book of Genesis. And what I hope we will discover together today is that God is the one who likes to transform chaos into order. God is the one who desires or loves to transform mess into beauty. Remember the description that Genesis 1 gives us of the earth before God began his creative work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This was the description of the earth before day one. This is like day zero, if you like. In the beginning, before day one, the earth was formless and void. There was no shape to it. And it was empty. There was no life in it. It was just, as the Bible describes it, a big mass of deep, dark water. Some translations say that the water in the beginning, some translations call it the abyss. That's what the earth was like before God got his hands upon it. A big, dark, watery 
abyss. Now, as you read through the Bible, what you're going to discover is that the sea, the ocean, this big mass of water that we read about in the first few verses of the Bible, comes to be symbolic of some pretty negative concepts. You read through the Bible, you're going to see that the ocean becomes symbolic for things like chaos and confusion and terror and evil and wickedness. It's not really difficult to understand why the sea comes to symbolize things like that. I mean, we're blessed and privileged to live right by the sea here. And listen, the sea is a beautiful thing to look out upon. But let's make no mistake, friends, the the sea is a scary monster. It's a dangerous place to be. It is huge and powerful and unpredictable and you do not want to mess with the sea. It's okay to look at it and enjoy the view, but you don't want to mess with it. We've all seen um, scenes of the sea crashing against rocks in a particularly heavy storm, haven't we? We've all seen that where the sea just crashes and crashes and goes miles up into the air and it's a, it's an exciting thing to watch But friends, you wouldn't want to be on those rocks when the sea is crashing in. It's chaos. It's unpredictable. It's powerful. It's ruthless. It's brutal. The sea, as much as it is nice to look at, is a scary place. And that's what it came to be associated with as the storyline of the Bible develops. And so way back in the beginning, before day one, on day zero, what we're getting is this picture of this chaotic, dangerous, unstable mass of water. That's what the earth was like before God got his creative hands upon it. God enters the story. And he begins to transform what is scary and chaotic and unpredictable into something that is beautiful and vibrant and colorful. I don't know if you've noticed, but the way God begins to deal with the formless and empty creation is he begins to separate things out. On days one, two and three, God separates things into their different spheres. So on day one, we're told that God separates the light from the darkness, the day from the night. On day two, we're told that God separates the waters that are under from the waters that are over, and he puts the sky in between them. On day three, we're told that God separates the earth from the water. And so days one, two, and three, God is dealing with the shapelessness, the formlessness of the earth from day zero. He is separating things out. He is giving shape to what was shapeless. And then on days four, five, and six, God begins to tackle the emptiness that existed on the earth on day zero. On day four, he fills the sky with the lights, the sun, the moon, and the planets and the stars. He fills it, fills the space. On day five, he fills the oceans with living creatures. On day six, he fills the land with animals and humans. 
And so days one, two, and three, God deals with the shapelessness. And on days God deals with the emptiness and by the end of day six what was chaotic and empty and shapeless is now beautiful and ordered and vibrant and harmonious God took creation from a state of empty chaos to a state of beauty and safety and harmony and love It's quite the transformation, actually, when you read the story. From day zero through to day seven. What was empty and chaotic on day zero becomes beautiful and glorious on day seven. In fact, this is the way God describes it on day seven. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Chaos, emptiness, shapelessness on day zero, on day seven, order and beauty and life and harmony. Really is a beautiful picture of what the world was like on day seven. Everything existing together in harmony. Everything working together in perfect unity. See, by the end of God's creative work, the seas were where the sea should be, and the land was where the land should be, and there was no conflict between the land and the sea. The sea creatures were where they should be, and the land creatures were where they should be, and there was no conflict between them. The humans and the animals lived in perfect harmony, By the end of day six, the humans weren't trying to kill the animals so they could eat them. And the animals weren't trying to destroy the humans so they could eat them. Everything was working together in perfect harmony and joy. And human beings on day six loved one another and enjoyed one another. By the end of God's creative work, we have a picture of a world that is complete and in harmony and safe, and stable, and beautiful, and vibrant. You know, there's a famous Hebrew word that is used to describe what the world was like by the end of day six. It's the word shalom. You all know that word, don't you? Shalom. Shalom. Translate it as peace. But the biblical concept of shalom is far more than the way we understand the word peace. When we talk about peace, we generally mean the absence of conflict. But when the Bible uses this concept of shalom, it means more than just the absence of conflict. It means the presence of beauty and harmony and perfection and completeness and togetherness and unity. That's what shalom means. And that's what the world was like at the end of day six. It was shalom. So God really did do a good job. He took what was empty and shapeless and dark and chaotic and unpredictable and he shaped it with the power of his word into something that was filled with shalom. That's the kind of world I want to live in. Anyone else? But friends, sadly, sadly, for reasons that we're going to discover when we get to Genesis 3, probably in a couple of years' time, 
Sadly, the world that we live in is not right now marked by shalom, is it? Let's face facts. We look at the world around us. There ain't much shalom out there. Even this week, we've had a devastating reminder of that, haven't we? We looked out at the events in Turkey. This devastating earthquake has killed tens of thousands of people. You look at the pictures on the news and there's only one way that you can describe what you're seeing. Chaos. Definitely not shalom. Chaos. Why? Because the earth quaked. The earth tri- It seems to me that we live in a world that's in conflict with itself. The earth is in conflict with itself. That's what an earthquake is. It's when the earth begins to fight against itself. It causes everything to tumble. Just last summer, we saw devastating, catastrophic floods over in Pakistan, didn't we? Thousands of people killed, millions of people displaced because the rivers and the seas swelled. The earth we live in, friends, is not marked by shalom. It seems to be more marked by conflict. The land is in conflict with itself. The sea is in conflict with the land and it reaps devastating consequences. And that's just natural conflict. You throw humans into the mix and it gets even worse. You throw tyrannical dictators into the mix and the world becomes even more a place marked by conflict. Wars and factions and fights and weapons and armies and man, we live in a world It's not marked by shalom. It's marked by conflict. And if we're honest, I think we probably feel like the world we live in is closer to day zero than it is to day seven. Right? The world we live in is closer to the chaos of day zero than it is the shalom of day Seven, And I think the same can also be true for us in our individual lives as well. Right? We know that there are times in life, maybe this is even you this morning, where there is just conflict and shalom seems like a distant dream. Because as we walk through life as human beings, we come into conflict with various things, don't we? We come into conflict with the land, right? Humans and the land were supposed to get on in harmony. We do not get on. Come to my garden, I'll show you, right? I do not get on with the land. It's fighting against me all the time, right? We have conflict with other people. Right? We have conflict even with the ones we love the most. There's friction and there's tension. Come to my house and spend some time with my kids and I'll show you that. Right? There's conflict. Right? And perhaps most perplexing and most bemusing of all is friends, don't we have conflict even with ourselves? 
You look into your own heart and there's conflict there. There are these desires that fight against one another. And it becomes tiring. Sometimes it drives us to despair and we find ourselves wishing just for the shalom of day seven. But sometimes even our own lives feel more like the chaos of day zero than the shalom of day seven. You know, there's one particular character in the Bible. Well, there's more than one, but there's one particular this morning character in the Bible who, whose life was particularly marked by chaos. You know him. His name's Jacob. If you don't know his story, I want to encourage you to read it. You can read the story of Jacob and his family in the book of Genesis between chapters 25 and 49. And um, listen, if you want to feel better about your own life, go away and read the story of Jacob. His life was marked by conflict from the moment he was born. In fact, even before he was born, the Bible tells us that his life was marked by conflict. You see, Jacob had a twin brother whose name was Esau. And we read in the Bible that when Jacob and Esau were growing in the womb of their mother, they were fighting, right? It says they wrestled inside the womb of their mother. So even before Jacob was born, his life was marked not by shalom, but by chaos and conflict. And you see, this conflict just spilled out into his life when he was born. You see, they were twin brothers and his, his life, his childhood, his upbringing, really, we get the impression, really wasn't a happy period of his life. Because you see, as I said, Jacob had a twin brother and Jacob's dad loved his twin brother more than him. And Jacob's mother loved Jacob more than his twin brother. And so this family was a family that was divided. There was not harmony. There was not unity. There was division. There was conflict. And so Jacob and Esau, they grew up in this environment of conflict. And what it did is it produced a rivalry between them. This rivalry came to a head when they had both grown into adults and Jacob and his mother teamed up with one another and they deceived Jacob's father into giving Jacob the inheritance and the blessing that was rightfully his brother's. And so they tricked his father. Now the older brother Esau, he found out about this and he was not happy about what Jacob and his mother had done. And so what Esau did was he decided to get revenge on Jacob and said, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. These are brothers, twin brothers, right? Jacob finds out that his twin brother wants to kill him. And so he runs away. And for 20 years, he is estranged from his family. Conflict, chaos. While Jacob is away, he falls in love with a girl called Rachel. And he, he plans to marry this girl because he really did love her. But he kind of accidentally ended up marrying her sister as well. Now we're told that Jacob was beautiful and Leah, Leah 
the sister, she looked like the back of a bush, apparently, according to the Bible. All right? And Jacob ended up with these two sisters, both as his wives. And he, but he loved one and not so much the other. Conflict. Conflict. Not shalom. And he had children with both of these women. But the children he had with he had with Rachel, he loved more than the children he had with Leah. And so even when he began to have kids, this conflict continued and actually grew and became more destructive and more damaging. And so his kids also came into a world and a family that was marked not by shalom, but by conflict. And his kids were even more chaotic than him, Jacob. There was one occasion where one of Jacob's daughters uh, went to a nearby city and tragically she was, she was uh, sexually abused by some of the men in that city. And when some of Jacob's sons found out what had happened to their sister, they decided to go to that city and kill every man there. And they did. Chaos. Conflict. Not shalom. Jacob's life was marked by chaos and conflict. And now his children's life are marked by chaos and conflict. And some of his boys are even murderers by this point. There's another occasion where one of, other, one of Jacob's other sons, a man named Judah, he, he, um, he grew up and he had kids and one of his sons got married to a woman. And for this strange set of circumstances, Judah actually ended up getting his own son's daughter pregnant. I mean, it's enough to fill a few years' worth of EastEnders episodes in this story, right? I mean, just read the story. It's not marked by shalom. It's marked by chaos. It's marked by conflict and jealousy and rivalry and bitterness and murder and adultery and division and brokenness. Jacob's life and the life of his family was nothing but chaos. But you see, God had his hand on Jacob's life. And you get to the end of the story of Jacob, and what you discover is that in spite of all the chaos, in spite of all the conflict, in spite of all the turbulence that existed in this crazy family, you're going to find that by the end of Jacob's life, they were reconciled, they were living in harmony with one another, and the family was flourishing. You see, God had his hand in Jacob's life. And even though Jacob's life was marked by chaos and conflict, even from before the moment he was born, by the end of his life, God had managed to transform that chaos into harmony and reconciliation and actually salvation. You see, God loves to take what is chaotic and transform it into something beautiful. But you see, that's not where the story of Jacob ends. The story of Jacob does not end with him dying. Because if you read on in the story of Jacob's family through the pages of the Old Testament, what you're going to discover is that Jacob, this crazy, chaotic man with a crazy, chaotic family, Jacob had children who had children themselves, who had children themselves, who had children themselves, until one day, one of Jacob's great, 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 great grandchildren was born. He was born to a couple called Mary and Joseph. 
And this great, 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 great grandchild of Jacob's name was Jesus, otherwise known as the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. And this Jesus, who was born as a distant grandchild of Jacob and his crazy family, this Jesus is the very same Jesus who, on page one of the Bible, took creation from chaos to shalom. And this very same Jesus is the one who has promised to one day take this world from the chaos that it is currently in and transform it into a place filled with harmony and peace and shalom. You see, God had his hand upon Jacob's life. And even though it was marked by chaos and disorder and dysfunction, God somehow managed to bring that chaos and transform it into shalom. God took that crazy, chaotic family marked by conflict and division and somehow used that to bring forth the Redeemer of the world. You see, God loves to take what is chaotic and transform it into something beautiful. God loves to take what is messy and bring it to restoration. God loves to take what is empty and without life and transform it into something that is filled with beauty and harmony and life. God did it on day one. God did it, sorry, on page one of the Bible. Took the world from chaos to shalom. God did it in the life of Jacob. God will do it again through the life of Jesus. And friends, this morning, I want you to know that God can do it for you as well. God can take your chaos. In fact, God loves to take your chaos and transform it into something beautiful. You know, even this morning, you may feel like your life is chaotic right now. You may feel like there's chaos on the inside and there's chaos on the outside. There's conflict on the inside and there's conflict on the outside. This morning, you may be sitting in these seats not knowing whether you're coming or going. You may feel like your life is an utter mess right now. Well, I want to pray that this morning you can find some strength and hope in the God who loves to take chaos and transform it into shalom. God took the chaos of Jacob's life and used it to bring forth the Redeemer of the world. God took the chaos of day zero and transformed it into the beauty of day seven. And God will one day take the chaos of this world, the earthquakes, the floods, the conflict, the wars, the bloodshed. God's going to take that chaos and transform it into something beautiful, marked by shalom and harmony and peace. That's what God loves to do. That's what he is like, and that's what he wants to do for you in your life too. Now just to finish our time together this morning, what I want to do is take you to a psalm. I want to take you to Psalm 46. Because I think this psalm is going to help us kind of tie up everything that we've been 
reflecting on together. It's quite a well-known psalm, Psalm 46. And what it is, is the words of a prayer or a song that were written by somebody or a group of somebodies, um, written at a time when it felt to them like the world was collapsing in on itself. Psalm 46 was written at a time when something so desperate and so intense and so chaotic was happening that it felt to them like the world was being uncreated. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now listen to this, verse 2. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It's really interesting language. Really interesting language that the psalmist is using to describe a particularly difficult set of circumstances in their life. It sounds to me like they're describing Genesis 1 in reverse, doesn't it? Right? See, in Genesis 1, what we get is God separating the land from the earth. What we see is God separating the, the, sorry, the sea from the earth. What we see is God creating boundaries and bringing order to the earth. But yet in Psalm 46, the psalmist says, well, the, the mountains are falling into the sea. The earth is giving way. It seems to me like Psalm 46 is describing a reversal of Genesis chapter 1. That's how intense, we don't know exactly what the particular situation was that the psalmist was going through, but whatever it was, it was so chaotic, so intense, so painful that it felt to them like the world was being uncreated. And sometimes our lives can feel like that, right? Sometimes what we walk through is so intense and so chaotic that it can feel like the world is collapsing in on itself. But in this moment, the psalmist wants us to know that when it feels like the world is falling apart at its seams, the psalmist wants us to know that we do not need to be afraid. We do not need to be afraid because, as he says in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. And he is a very present help in times of trouble. In other words, the psalmist is saying, when everything is chaos all around you, understand that God is present with you, wanting to help and strengthen and protect you in that moment. That's what the psalmist wants us to know this morning. Is that when the world feels like it's falling apart, do not fear, because God is with you in the chaos. And the psalm goes on and on, but I love the way this psalm ends. Listen to the way the psalm ends. In verse 10 it says this, Be still and know that I am God. You can flick it on to the next. Cheers, mate. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in all the earth. In other words, the psalmist says, listen, when it feels like the world is collapsing in on itself, just don't panic. 
Don't rush around trying to fix everything. Just be still and know that he is God. And then the psalm ends with this. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is our fortress. When everything is falling apart, the psalmist says, when the world is in chaos and when your life is a mess, remember that the God who is with us is the same God as the God of Jacob. Remember Jacob? Remember what a mess he was? Remember what chaos his life was like? Remember how screwed up he was and how dysfunctional his family? Do you remember the deceit, the betrayal, the lies, the bloodshed, the division, the immorality? Do you remember Jacob? And do you remember how God laid his hand upon Jacob? And in spite of all the chaos, and in spite of all the turbulence, and in spite of all the dysfunction, and in spite of all the rebellion, and in spite of all the sin, and in spite of all the failings, do you remember how God took that man and his family and managed to bend it towards his purpose to the point where the Redeemer of the whole universe came forth? The God of Jacob is with us. The God who takes a broken, messed up man like Jacob and somehow transforms his life and uses it to bring about shalom and redemption and salvation and healing. That's the God who is with us. He's a God who loves to take chaos and transform it into shalom. I want you to be encouraged by this this morning. Because I know that life is chaotic for many of us. And there's conflict on many sides. Conflict without and conflict within. Sometimes it doesn't feel like whether we know whether we're coming or we're going. I want you to know that the God of Jacob is with you. The same God as the God of Jacob is with you. Listen, life is hard and life is chaotic. Listen, friends, just think about recent history, even of the life of this body of believers, even of the life of this church. You don't need to go over old ground, but it's not been an easy last several years, has it? Let's face facts. Right? Even the life of this church has been marked by chaos and conflict and pain and heartache and division. Listen, and there's many different reasons for that, for sure. But even the life of this church has been marked by conflict and chaos. But friends, the God of Jacob is with us. The God of Jacob is with us. The God who takes what is broken and chaotic and crazy and messy and transforms it into something that is beautiful and vibrant and filled with shalom. See, page one of the Bible shows us that God is a God who takes chaos, transforms it into shalom. The life of Jacob shows us that God is a God who takes what is chaotic and transforms it into what is beautiful.
He wants us to know this morning that the very same God who did that on day zero, day seven, the very same God who did that in the life of Jacob is the very same God who is with us and for us today. The God of Jacob is with us. Let's pray. And then Alan's going to come and lead us in a closing song.